You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Toby Warwick, who's been a reporter for the Washington Post since 1996, is the 2016 winner of the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction for his book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. I might add that this is his second Pulitzer Prize, which he earned in 1996 for public serving reporting. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Jim. After reading Black Flags, I came away feeling that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi might have just remained a small-time thug and in a way became an accidental leader. How did his time in prison shape his future and why was he released? Yeah, he really is kind of the accidental terrorist. And if you think of his story, and I think the book kind of bears this out, is just things happened over the course of history that propelled him into this situation that he otherwise would not have been in, with U.S. help in some cases. But I think prison time was, was an important chapter of his life. And if you look at other major terrorist figures, Zawahiri, the leader of Al-Qaeda today, was in an Egyptian prison for years. And Baghdadi, the current leader of ISIS, was in a U.S. prison camp in Iraq. So it becomes kind of a common experience for them. And what's interesting is that instead of being punishment or isolation, it ends up being kind of a jihadi university where they get ideas from each other and they get practical training and instruction. So how was it that he was released? So it was another of these uh, crazy accidents of history. Zarqawi was intended to be in jail for a long time, for 15 years. He wouldn't have gotten out to 2009. If you think about that date and how that fits in with the Iraq picture, it's very significant. But in Jordan, there's a tradition of amnesty when a sovereign dies. And in 1999, the king of Jordan, King Hussein, passes. And after his death, a general amnesty is granted for political prisoners. And uh, there's a long list of names put together, and Sarkawi ends up being on it, along with his entire core of followers. And so that's how he ends up getting out of jail early, and that's really the beginning of his career as a terrorist. So when King Abdullah realized this, could he do anything about it, or was yeah. it just too late? At the time, the Jordanians thought of Zarqawi as kind of a hothead and a troublemaker, but not a serious leader. Once again, as he had been many times in his life, he was underestimated. Nobody took him very seriously. Now they're very regretful of the fact that they let him go, and I think the king himself ruse that, that uh, decision. No, <laughs> no doubt. You know, in your view, why have so many of the recruits come from three countries that, relatively speaking, are stable? Morocco, even Tunisia, and of course Jordan. Yeah, it is interesting because we all think of these recruits as coming from impoverished areas or driven by repression or difficulties at home. It's not always the case. Sometimes people who are a little more educated, exposed to ideas, uh, can also become radicalized. And it's a bit of a mystery to me why these three countries making up the bulk of the rank of ISIS today, but it's, it's definitely the case. But you see many other Saudis, people from Asia, there's an Indonesian core, there's kids from the Philippines that join. So it really is a universal international movement today. And you go into considerable detail about how people are recruited, but how do we ever win this ideological battle when, as you've said, there are literally thousands, thousands of converts who say, not just do we believe, but we're willing to die. Mm. It's a really difficult challenge, and what we've found out is we in the West are not very good at de-radicalization because we don't have the standing in the Islamic community. Our moderate voices don't count for much because we're not regarded as experts or scholars that uh, really have any bearing. I think eventually ISIS ends up defeating itself because they're so extreme in their views and they're so extreme in their tactics, they end up turning off moderate Muslims around the world and just ordinary Muslims. We see in an opinion poll support for 
this ideology keeps going down and down and down. And the more they're driven back and the more people see what life was like in the caliphate and how badly people were treated. And how hard it is to escape. Exactly. Yeah. And how people were sometimes punished, killed for trying to escape. It very much goes against the mythology that they built a righteous Muslim organization. Well, our conversation today is certainly different than it might have been, say, 12, 18 months ago in that the so-called caliphate is shrinking. Mm. Given that, what are the options for ISIS? I think there's not much question now that the caliphate will fall. And that's a big deal for them because they put so much emphasis on building this thing, this physical entity, this caliphate. And for them to lose it, it very much cuts against the mythology they've built for themselves. It discredits them in the eyes of their followers around the world. But it's not the end of the line for them because they began it as an insurgency. In the 2000s, they were a underground movement that was very good at carrying out terrorist attacks. So they can very well do that again. And in fact, in some ways, it makes them a harder adversary because it's harder to find them and stop them. So is that the reason we're seeing more in Europe? I think absolutely so. And also now, I think because they're losing ground in the Middle East, they have to try to, to prove that they're still powerful, to show that they can still reach out across the West and kill and maim. It's very important to them at this moment. I think we'll probably see more of it in the months ahead. You know, one thing that has always puzzled me, and I wonder if we'll ever see any type of documentation, or maybe you've had conversations with some of the people you've interviewed about this, was the execution, the brutal execution, the beheading of journalist James Foley in August of 2014. What was their motivation? This is sort of the MO of ISIS, and it's hard for us to get our heads around just because it's so brutal. It's so that extreme. really brought the U.S. into it the did. It did. Yeah. If you think about the one moment, even maybe more than Paris, that sort of galvanized the American public and just made them afraid of this organization. It was that video. That tactic dates back from the Zarqawi era because Zarqawi did the same thing in 2004 to a young man from Philadelphia that he happened to kidnap, put him in an orange jumpsuit and beheaded him with his own hand. And for them, it's, it's this horrible image that shocks and repels us, but it galvanizes the base. It makes their core followers think, here's an organization that's able to stand up to the West, that's not afraid of anyone, that's getting revenge and, and retribution for all these injustices done to us over the centuries. And so it's a very powerful thing for them in a positive way. Do you think there's any second guessing about that strategy now? I think so because, you know, it was interesting that Al-Qaeda itself has always viewed these kinds of acts as unhelpful, as so damaging to the brand. And in Zarqawi's time, bin Laden himself was getting on Zarqawi's case for doing stuff like this, saying, this hurts us, this is not Islam, you shouldn't do it anymore. But Zarqawi and ISIS both have persisted in following this model. And I think it does for many Muslims, for many ordinary moderate and even conservative Muslims around the world, it sends absolutely the wrong image and makes them afraid of the organization and distrustful of them. What about U.S. strategy now? Do you think the threat to the United States, to our homeland, is greater or less than, say, a year ago? Mm. We're lucky in the sense that we do have pretty good border protection. There's none of this refugee flow that's affected Europe so profoundly has not affected us in nearly the same way. One cannot ever think that we're protected here. There's always could be something, but to the possibility of a, a really organized attack, something on the scale of, of Paris or Istanbul is less likely to happen here, but it only takes a few individuals. It doesn't take a big apparatus. It doesn't take a lot of money. So it's not impossible to do it here. I think we're probably a little more protected here than there would be in, in say, Europe or other parts of the world. Now, just last month, Abu Muhammad al-Adani, ISIS's number two, was killed. Now, we've removed a lot of their leadership. 
since we have that deck of cards, if mm -hmm. you want. But there seems to be an endless pipeline of new leadership. So in your view, what is the best strategy, or does that strategy work? It is a good strategy in the sense that it knocks them off balance. Adnani was a very important leader. He was a spokesman for the organization, sort of the public face of the organization. But more than that, he was the external operations leader. He was the one that was calling for revenge attacks against the West. He called specifically for the Paris attacks. He helped plan it, he helped move operatives in place. So getting rid of figures like that does put the organization on its heels and makes it harder for them to carry out acts. They do have a deep bench. They can certainly replace them with others. But anytime you take out a leader, it helps to shake up the organization and makes it harder to carry out their plans. Now, both presidential candidates have been, to be fair, somewhat vague on how they would approach this. What differences do you see? Mm. And I think that's a good point because I think in a political season, everyone is going to claim they have an answer. The reality is ISIS is a difficult problem. It certainly it would be inaccurate to say that there's an easy solution and people who suggest that we can wipe them out easily in, in a matter of weeks or months or there's some secret plan that's going to take them out of action. That's wishful thinking. But I think a sane leader, a smart leader is going to realize that we need allies. We need help from the Muslim world, certainly. So we have to be sure not to try to drive away who could be our best allies in this mm -hmm. fight. But also realize that there's a long game that we have to face. And it involves dealing with the ideology and also trying to put together this region of the world that's been torn asunder. We have to think about who's going to rebuild those cities, who's going to put those kids who've lived under ISIS in schools and give them hope for the future so they don't follow into some future insurgency or some awful terrorist organization that will emerge years from now. Joby, I have to say that I read your book late last year, and as I told our members over the last few weeks, I really think there are other books on ISIS, but yours really is one of the best written. It was just so interesting the way you built the story around a few of the characters have made such a difference. I'm not at all surprised that you won the Pulitzer. And I want to really encourage our listeners to pick up. Now it's in paperback, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, this week. So that's Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. Thanks so much for being with us, and let's go meet our members. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.